turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This morning's scripture reading is taken from the prophet Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. It can be found in your Blue Pooh Bible on page 595. It's page nine, five, 595. Living in the 8th century BC, the prophet told of a day when a, decent, a descendant of King David, filled with the Holy Spirit, would usher in a time of unprecedented peace between formerly hostile parties and people groups. Hear now the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with the righteousness he will, hear ju he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the year, year, yearling together. And a child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As, we, uh, as I mentioned this past um, Sunday, as we enter into Advent, we're going through a series, uh, really following the, the liturgical calendar, the calendar that the church has, has followed uh, throughout the centuries, uh, different denominations, different uh, traditions. And the, the first, the, really the season of Advent, as I've mentioned before, is a season of longing. It's a season of anticipation, of waiting. And those of you who, we just got, as of, I think it was just this morning, we have presents underneath our tree and that time of waiting begins, doesn't it? A sense of longing, of when is Christmas going to come? I remember uh, as a kid, those, that the December days used to drag on and on. They never seemed, you never seemed to get to Christmas. And Advent is that, it's very much that, it's that time of waiting. But it isn't just a waiting for Christmas, it's a waiting in the sense of reliving the story of God's people who waited for a promised Messiah. And traditionally, the, the, first Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent recalls the waiting of the patriarchs. And we saw that last week in Genesis chapter 18. We saw Abram, or Abraham and Sarah, they had been waiting for God to fulfill, to begin to fulfill his promise. And we saw in these, these mysterious visitors a, a, an assurance that God is able to bring life out of death. He's a God who's able to bring life out of death and true faith. Listen to this. True faith. Abrahamic faith is faith that believes that God can raise the dead. 
that God can take a situation that is utterly barren and bring life out of it. And so it is that the laughter of Sarah, the laughter of Abraham, a laughter of cynicism, a laughter of despair, a laughter of a sense of realism, oh, come on, ends up in a place of laughter of joy. What was laughter, a cynical laughter hidden inside is transformed into a laughter where Sarah says, everyone will laugh with me. A vocal, communal, hope-filled laughter. Beholding what God can do. And that's where Advent begins. It begins with a God, it begins with a God who can raise the dead. But a God who calls us to wait, as, we, as, we, as those of you who are in small groups, we discussed this past Wednesday, we asked the question, why did God make Abraham wait 25 years? Really? <laughs> really? 25 years he waited for the promise until he was, as, as Paul says, as good as dead and Sarah's womb was dead. He wants to show his power to us and that we see that supremely in the coming of Jesus So the first Sunday of Advent is really all about the notion of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're waiting, they're anticipating of one who was to come, who would reverse the curse, who would bring life out of death in this wondrous and and, and everlasting, decisive way. And and Abraham calls us to a faith, a faith that looks, looks straight at, faces the fact of the deadness of our souls to change, the deadness of the world around us, the deadness of all the political plans and purposes, the deadness of an empty season, an empty consumer Christmas holiday season. It calls us to, to look and see life, to say life can come out of this. So that's the first season of Advent. It's about the patriarchs and the faith of the patriarchs in one who is to come. In fact, what's so amazing about, about uh, the, the Gospel of John in John chapter 8, there's actually a, uh, Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders of his day, and they claim to be children of Abraham. And at one point, Jesus simply says to them, he says, this is so amazing, he says, you know, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was overjoyed. He saw it. Now, what, what, what did Jesus mean by that? I don't know. I mean, who were these three visitors? What was going on? I mean, think about that. I, want, I so want you to wonder this Advent season. Could God be visiting me? And I really don't know it. Could God be at work in my life in ways that I don't yet see? I don't yet begin to understand. Could there be visitors in my midst? And will I serve and welcome them? Will I welcome those who, whom God has brought mysteriously, strangely into my life, into, into my, my, my circle of influence? So this, as, as I mentioned, the first, uh, the first Sunday of Advent is about the patriarchs and the faith of the patriarchs. The second Sunday of Advent is about the prophets. In fact, if you've noticed even uh, in the, 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 the songs this morning, there's a this, there's this sense of how the prophets foretell one who was to come. And Lizzie very, uh, very, very capably read from the prophet Isaiah. 
And, and Isaiah chapter 11 addresses a longing, a longing for safety. I don't know how many of you remember some of the first things that you were afraid of. I can remember as a kid, I, I so desperately wanted to see, um, this would have been see, the early 80s, I think, and I so desperately wanted to see the Star Wars movies. And finally, my parents let me see the Star Wars movies, and I was absolutely terrified by Darth Vader. And from there on out, I always thought Darth Vader was in my closet at night. I lived in just this terror that one day he was, he was just going to break out of the closet. You know what I mean? It was kind of funny to think about it in retrospect, Darth Vader coming out of the closet. You know, but, um, you know, I just, I just, I, mean, I can remember thinking that, that that shape of that helmet was, was, it was in there. You know, or there were things under my bed. There were all the things. But it doesn't take long, does it? One of the, one of the greatest motivators in life is fear, isn't it? I can remember, I remember talking to a, a counselee. We were wrestling with some things, and she says, you show me something and I'll fear it. <laughs> I am so good at fearing things. That's what she said. It was so it was beautiful, sort of a humorous moment. But we're so, I'm, we're fear, fearful of all kinds of things. Fearful of failure. Fearful of being alone. It's that sense as we come into the world that we are so vulnerable. We're so vulnerable. We quickly realize that there are powers at play. There are forces at play around us that are much bigger than we are. And we begin to wonder, who will protect me? How can I be safe? And whom can I really trust? Who's reliable? And for many of us, as we go on in life, we arrive at a place of real cynicism. A real sense that the answer to those questions is no one. No one will protect me. No one can keep me safe. Who can I trust? No one. We've been burned enough times by supervisors, by our siblings, by our spouses. We've been burned. And we wonder, we, feel, we live our lives feeling unsafe and cynical. And we get especially cynical about leaders, about leadership, church leadership, political leadership, Leadership at work, leadership in the home, we get cynical. Well, if you are cynical about the possibility of one that you can trust, if you're cynical about the idea of ever feeling safe and protected, if you're cynical about leaders, join the prophets. The prophets, think about this. Well, often we just think of prophets in the, in, you know, in the Old Testament, just kind of showing them out of nowhere and just kind of talking and they leave and whatever. Prophets actually, the role of the prophet was actually quite distinct. Think of the role of a prophet this way. The role of the prophet was like a divorce attorney. Divorce attorneys don't show up unless things have gotten really, really bad. Think of the Pentateuch and, the, and Deuteronomy. Think of the Old Testament Exodus and Deuteronomy as these sort of marriage vows that God had come and saved his people. He had brought them to Mount Sinai. He, he had wedded himself. He had made vows to them, and they, they, they had made vows to him. There was this covenant relationship between God and his people. I will be your God, and, and you will be my people, says God to Israel. 
And it's on the basis of that that they proceeded to have a relationship. And yet in that relationship, vows were broken again and again, and God would send his prophets. See, the thing is that God's people had been called to be different. They had called to be what's called holy. And the reason for that difference wasn't just sort of different for the sake of difference. The point of being different was to actually make a difference. Let me say that again. The point of being different from the world was so that you might make a difference in the world. Think about that. If you're the exact same as the world around you, you, not, you can't make a difference. You're not, you're not gonna make any, you're not gonna produce, uh, invite, you're not gonna instigate any sort of change. And so the, the question of holiness of God's people being different, that they might make a difference, it raises the question, what if God's people refuse? What if God's people are no different from the world? Well, that's where the prophets came in. The prophets were there to say, whoa, time out. You are no different from the rest of the world. And to challenge them and to call out God's people. The prophets hated hypocrisy, just like you and me. Now in Isaiah chapter 12 here, we see, uh, we see look at verse 1, we see a, a, a metaphor of a stump Okay, and it's very common in the ancient world and in the prophets, it's very common to use a metaphor of a garden or of a vineyard uh, to talk about the idea of human flourishing. To talk about the idea of, of a society, of a city, of a people flourishing. They do so like a garden. You think of the way that a garden is tended or a vineyard. In fact, in chapter 5 of Isaiah, God speaks of Israel as his vineyard. He says, I planted a vineyard. I cleared everything off. I built a wall around it so that nothing could get in. It would be protected and safe. And he, he talks about how that vineyard betrayed him. That vineyard didn't, the vines didn't produce the grapes that he had desired. It made only bad grapes, and hence it, all it does is produce briars and thorns. And he speaks of Jerusalem as that vineyard and talks about how it was, the city of, it was a city of injustice and oppression. It was a city about getting more than giving. It was, a, it was a city that was all about simply having good times. And thus, the prophet Isaiah uh, is, is sent to speak against that injustice. So we have this metaphor, again, of a garden. And often in that garden, in this metaphor, there's a tree. And that tree is, 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 is designed to grow and to become large and, 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 and to provide shade. A shade that will bring comfort, that will bring protection. And that tree is symbolic of the, of, of the leadership. It's symbolic of the king. That in this garden of human flourishing, in this garden of if, if God's people, if, if humanity in general, if they are to flourish, there must be a tree that grows up strong and tall and wide in its branches and it protects, it provides shade. And that is exactly the calling of, day, of, 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 of the king in, uh, in Israel. The king of Israel was to be God's special agent through whom, he would, he would, through whom God would exercise his reign in the world. And there was a very clear um, uh, arrangement made between God and the king, between God and David and his descendants. And it's, it's very simple. It's simply this, that the more God rules in David, the more God would rule through David. 
Let me say that again. The more God rules in the king, the more the king submits to God, the more God will rule through him. The more, more people in the world will submit to David and to God. See, David and his descendants were to be this instrument, this agent of blessing, this agent of protection. But what happened, of course, when the king said, you know what? I don't want God to rule in me. I don't want to be the tree that provides protection. What, what, was, God supposed, what was God going to do? Well, he already had promised. He said, if you, if, he said, David, if your sons do not obey me, I will punish them. If you're not, you can't, I can't, I'm not going to point you to a place of political leadership. If you're not going to, I'm not going to let you stay there if you don't actually uh, uh, use the influence, the power that you have for good to protect the poor, to protect the needy, to, to rule wisely. And so we have this picture in chapter 11, verse 1, of a, of, of a situation where the king, where the line of David has been punished. David's dynasty had, had all but failed. And God, in his, in his, his bittersweet providence, had cut the line of David in Isaiah's day. It's an amazing story, actually. When you think about the politics of the time, you have, you have Israel in the north, you have Judah in the south, and you have this growing threat from the east called Assyria. And the Assyrian armies were, were, were invading all throughout the Levant, through that whole area, and there was not a people group or nation that was not terrified by the Assyrian armies because they were absolutely ruthless. Every form of genocide, every form of war crime that you could imagine, the Assyrians practically invented it. And as they swept through, swept from the north down into the area of Israel and Judah, Israel, as, as the prophets had, had it foretold, is the northern kingdom was utterly swept, swept away. And all of its people were exiled, just scattered throughout um, the Assyrian Empire, never, most of whom were never seen from again. And then as, as, the, Assyrian, as the Assyrians, the forces continued down into Judah, tackling city after city after city, they finally, King, King Sennacherib with all his forces, finally got to the door of Jerusalem. And it was there that King Hezekiah pled before the Lord, begging in humility and sackcloth and ashes, asking God to intervene against a force of three, over 300,000 soldiers. Imagine what that would be like. Just sort of close your eyes and imagine Lord of the Rings or something like that. You can imagine what this would have been, this, 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 this massive fortress that was the city of Jerusalem, that was, that was Zion, Mount Zion, and with all, with, with all these battering rams all around it. And we read, we can read this both in, in Kings and also in Isaiah, Isaiah 36 and 37, 38. We read how God answers Hezekiah's prayer. And in, in, in one night, the angel of the Lord goes out and destroys 300,000 Assyrian soldiers. It's amazing. You can actually go to London. You can go to the, um, the British Museum in London, and you can actually see an account of the various um, you know, inscriptions and depictions on the walls of, of Sennacherib, how he had conquered various uh, city after city after city. And then in his own annals, it's so, it's so interesting, in his own annals, as he's writing about all the cities that he's conquered, he gets to Jerusalem, and he says, and you can actually see this, it says, 
and he boasts, he said, I had King Hezekiah um, caught like a bird in a cage. And then right after that, it says, and then I went home. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, what happened? Well, I just went home. Uh, why did you go home? I want to talk about it. Right? 300,000 soldiers decimated by the angel of the Lord in one night. And he returns to, uh, to, to Nineveh where he's actually, the Sennacherib is actually um, uh, assassinated by one of his own sons. So God enters. So God, here is God, and he, he takes Hezekiah, the, the king of Judah, and, and that's all Hezekiah's got. He's got the, simply the city. He's been totally cut down. All he is is a stump on a tree, humbled. The whole Davidic line has been snubbers. Di- David's dynasty had utterly failed. And it's here in chapter 11 that Isaiah speaks of a time when there will be a, a king on the throne who actually will be a tree of protection, a tree of safety. Let's look, look, look at this together. Look at these, these verses are so beautiful. After the punishment of verse 1, after the punishment will come, will come a king of true power. Look at verses 2 through 5. After, after the punishment of this humbling of David's dynasty, it says, Isaiah, there will come a king of true power. Look at verses 2 through 5. What do I mean by true power? First, it's a power that's from outside. It's a power that's from outside. Look at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is not some guy who goes to the right school. It's not some guy who, goes, you know, who somehow has the right, reads the right books, has the right management skills. It's not about ability, it's not about capacity, it's simply a power that's from outside. It shows that no human person, again, here's the cynicism of the prophets, no one leader can ever save the day. Leaders, your, your political leaders, your corporate leaders, your church leaders will fail you. They will fail you. But here's a power that comes from outside. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Four times the Spirit, God's Spirit is mentioned in verse 2. God's Spirit is, God, is his animating presence. It's his potential, the sense of power of what he can do in and through someone. So first, this power is from outside. Second, this power that he wields, this, this new king to come wields, is focused on God. Look at verse 3. The first half of verse 3, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. That is to say, this, this is a power that's focused not on what people think, but on what God says. It's a focus on God. It's a power that focuses on God, that trusts not in cravings, one's own personal cravings. Well, this is what I feel like we should do here. It's not a power that relies on, on one's own culture. It takes a poll. Let's take a poll and see what we should do. It's a trust, it's a power that trusts not in cravings or in our culture, but in our Creator, the one who made us, the one who knows us inside and out. So, this is a king whose power is from outside, a power that's focused on God. And the next is a power that is fair, that has no favoritism whatsoever. Look in verse, the second half of verse 3. He will judge not by what he sees or decide by what he hears. Those of you who know, if you've ever seen the image of the woman justice, you'll know that she is what? That she's blind. She's blindfolded. 
The idea is that I'm not going to pay attention to who's who. Some big wig walks into the court, doesn't matter. Some poor person comes in, doesn't matter. There's a sense of blindness, that, that there is, that there is, a, there is a, a fairness. There's a sense of equality, a sense of, no, of, of non-partiality. So there's a power that's from outside. It's a power that focuses on God. It's a power that is fair. It's a power that focuses on, it's for the little ones. Look at verse, chapter 4, verse, I mean, verse, chapter 11, verse 4, the first half. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. And with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. You know, it's such an amazing thing to think of. When you see power used to help the needy, the weak, the lowly, the little ones, it's an amazing thing to behold. This phrase, but with righteousness and with justice, this notion of justice and righteousness is actually the language of social justice. And that, that phrase, justice and righteousness, or righteousness and justice, is found all throughout the Old Testament. And it's this notion that the king or those in positions of leadership are there to protect the most vulnerable. They're there to protect the most, the marginalized, those who are invisible, the voiceless. That is exactly the role of the ideal king. He is there to help, to, to, um, to facilitate, to care for, to protect the little ones. He is a tree of protection. So it's a power that is from outside. It's a power that's focused on God, that trusts not in its own cravings or in its culture, but in the creator. It's a power that is fair, a power that's for the little ones, and a power that is fearless with liars. Let's look, look at the second half of verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the, bread of his, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Now this, this may strike you as somehow kind of unmerciful or something like that, but understand what the king is doing here. The king is someone who is unafraid to address issues. How many of you have been in situations Maybe it's a family, maybe it's a work situation, maybe it's a school, where coaches, supervisors, parents refused to address a difficult situation. They just pretend like it doesn't even exist. Because they don't want, they can't be bothered by it. Can you, I'll tell you how many times, I remember my time in the military, it was pretty clear that when certain people did certain things wrong, they weren't going to get a call for it. They would, they would just they would look the other way. But a true leader is a leader who's actually willing to address issues. Here's fearless. I wrote here fearless with liars because he says he will slay the wicked. Here the wicked isn't just some wicked person. It's those who don't follow through on what they've said to do. It's those who bail at the last minute. It's those who just saying, look, he, he will have no patience for those who are pretenders who say they will do something but don't actually follow through because it's so destructive. So this is a power that's, that's from outside. It's focused on God. There's a fear of the Lord there. It's a, it's a power that's fair and for the little ones. It's fearless before injustice. It addresses issues. And finally, it's a power that's faithful. It's a power that's faithful. Look at verse 5. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Very often in the Old Testament, righteousness and faithfulness are synonyms. And this notion of faithfulness, of reliability, this is a king that in any and every situation you can trust. You can actually trust him. You 
And when you recognize that you can actually trust him, one of the most amazing things will happen in your life. The fear that rules you will begin to dissipate. The fear of failure, the fear of death, the fear of weakness, because you will have a connection. You will know a guy, right? You'll know someone. You'll know the one who's sitting at the right hand. You'll know the one who literally has the reins on the cosmos. Faith and fear are opposites. And you can have faith in this king because he's faithful he is reliable. Now what will be the result of all of this, this king who has this true power, a, tr- a power that's, as I said, from outside, focused on God, so fair, always for the little ones, fearless in the face of liars, and always faithful. What will be the result of that? What will be the result of this true power? Well, a true peace, a true peace. See, in the, in the, in the, after the punishment of, 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 these, of these failed kings, Isaiah promises one who will come who will indeed have true power, a true power that will bring true peace. Look, look in verses 6 through 9. This is a peace that is between complete enemies. Here in verses 6 through 8, Isaiah pulls out all poetic stops. It is, the language here is just stunning. It's amazing. It's just so provocative. Verses 6 through 8, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them, the cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the cobra's den, oh, right, and it just, you think about it, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest, why does Why does Isaiah employ the imagery of animals here? What's he trying to communicate? He's saying that when this king reigns, there will be a peace, a seemingly impossible peace between complete enemies. That the sign of his reign is when two parties, it just seems like it's in their DNA that they will never get along, are actually getting along. They're actually not only getting, not only just sort of coexisting, they're actually thriving together, relying on each other. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. Their young will lie down together. They're keeping one another, the, verse 7, the cow and the bear, they're keeping themselves warm. Isn't that amazing? The lion's actually changing its diet. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. You have this, again, you have, a, you have this little child and an infant. And it's living among them, complete, complete safety, exploring the viper's nest, playing near the cobra's den. Why does, why does, why does he use this imagery of animals? Well, because as you and I know, we can treat each other so inhumanely. We can devour each other with our words, with our, with our, with our, our fists, And quite probably here, these animals stand not just for individual persons, 
In the Old Testament, and again and again in the prophets, animals stand for, 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 for nations. They stand for kingdoms. Think of Daniel chapter 7, how Daniel's, Daniel's vision of the various kingdoms that come are these animals. And these animals, that, when the whole point is that they are inhumane. They are, they are predatorial. They, they, have, they are completely um, just, uh, they have no interest in preserving the dignity and nobility. You're not going to rationalize with them. They're just a raw power. And this king, says Isaiah, will actually help them, enable them, empower them to get along. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, how do you know that the kingdom has come? How do you know that the gospel is at work in this area? Do you know what he'd say? He'd say, that's easy. It's when Jew and Gentile are having a beer together. It's when black and white are having dinner together, out barbecuing. It's when rich and poor are going for a jog, whatever it is. It's when person, people groups and classes are overcome by these centuries-old differences. You're thinking, that's never going to happen. This king is a king who can come, and he can actually reconcile the irreconcilable. And what's so important to see that behind these animals, and it's so interesting that he closes here in verse verse 8, what does he talk about? The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. There's a sense of fearlessness of a serpent. Because behind all of these dark, beast-like, inhumane powers and empires, do you know who's lurking? The ancient serpent. The one who's called Satan the devil, who has every desire to do one thing, to destroy. He wants to deceive, he wants to divide, and he wants to destroy. Do you believe that? And he wants to do it not only in marriages, not only in relationships, interpersonal relationships. He wants to do it in cultures and in neighborhoods and societies. He wants to see white and black hate each other. He wants to see justice corrupted. He wants us to see young and old just, just misunderstand each other, disregard each other. He wants that so much. And Isaiah is saying there's coming a day when there will be a king who will overcome that dark power. I don't know if you've never noticed this, but the Christmas carols that we sing are loaded with references to the evil one. Did you notice the very first song we sang this morning? God, rest ye merry gentlemen, nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, the, the beautiful song that uh, Clara sang, uh, well, multiple songs that she sang this morning. By the way, she filled in for Jesse, who had 102 temperature. She's like, oh, sure, I'll sing that song, no problem. Thank you, Clara, very much. That was, that was beautiful. Though the songs speak of a king who is victorious over the powers of darkness. Stop right now, let me ask you. Do you believe there is an evil one who wants to bring division and destruction in this world? Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is an evil one who wants to destroy your marriage? 
He believes in an evil one who wants to destroy this church. And he does it through conflict. You know the number one reason why, why pastors get out of the ministry? It's not moral failure. That's, that's up there. It's conflict. They get so tired of conflict. They get so tired of the bickering, the arguing. And that's not, that's not a veiled threat. That's not, there's nothing behind that, okay? All right? So some of you looked a little concerned there. I was like, I'm not going anywhere. I need, I need a job, okay? No. No, but do you see what's at stake? And it's in that vein that we are to be peacemakers. How do you know the king has come when his subjects are bent on making enemies into friends? Do you know anyone that you're estranged from right now? Do you know anyone who just hates your guts? I get it. It takes two to tango. I understand. That's why the apostle Paul says, as far as is possible, if it, as, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Did you get those qualifiers? As far as, as far as it is possible, as far as it depends on you, I'm sorry, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Jesus says, if you're there at the altar and your brother remembers that, or your brother or sister remember, you remember that they have something against you. You don't have something against them. They have something against you. What do you do? You stop what you're doing. You stop. You put down the gift. You're there at the altar. Just, I don't, don't worship me. Stop and go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. So the king is a king who's a peacemaker, and he wants his people to be peacemakers. Because real intimacy, I have said this so many times to Ron and Jen, they, look at, they roll their eyes probably when I say, I said, I said, man, real unity on this session is hard fought for. It comes through us disagreeing, talking, working through our struggles, confronting real accountability, real encouragement. It's hard fought for, and that's true to marriage. Show me a marriage where there's no conflict, I'll show you a marriage where there's no intimacy. God wants to work through our conflicts to show that the gospel is greater, that there is a king who has overcome the accuser of the brethren. And we are part of that reign of peace when we confess our sin. We humble ourselves before the Lord. So this is a true peace, a peace that's between complete enemies. And second and finally here, a peace that is based on knowing God. Look at verse 9. They will, they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. There again, the mountain is an analogy for, the, for the God's kingdom. A mountain is permanent. And the idea here is it's permanent and it's massive. You have to go around. And the idea is God's kingdom is permanent and massive. You, can't, you have to go around. You can't avoid it. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What will bring about this reign of peace? A knowing of God that is so amazing. See, that is, when, we know his, when we know God's mercy, we ourselves will be merciful. When we know his might, we will be filled with hope. We will be like Abraham and Sarah. As, Abraham, as we read in Paul, where, where, where God speaks of Abraham saying, he, he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. When we see his power, the power of the God who raises the dead, we are hopeful when we know his wisdom, we will be wise. When we know his wrath, when we tremble at his wrath, we will show mercy because we will not even want our enemies to experience that wrath. How, is this, how, does, this, how does this peace come about? Simply through knowing God. Apparently, it, it, apparently through this Davidic descendant, people people will come face to face 
with the God who created them and is able to recreate them. They will know the Lamb who was slain for them. They will know God. And in the knowledge of God, there will be peace. Let me ask you this morning, let me close with this. Do you know God? Do you know him? In the Old Testament, the way that you describe a Christian is, is this phrase, seekers of God, those who seek the Lord. Are you someone who seeks the Lord? And whatever position God has placed you in as a parent, as a coworker, as a supervisor, as a leader, whatever position he's put you in, the more you know God, the more you will bring peace to those underneath you. The more you will bring flourishing and life to them. And the more you will enjoy the peace that God has for us. Do you have a faith in a God who raises the dead? A God who can do the impossible? A God who can bring life out of death? Do you have faith in a king who reigns with true power and is bringing in true peace. Let's, let's, let's bow our heads together.